Welcome to another episode of Saints and Sinners Unplugged. Uh, we have three of our regular four co-hosts. We are still missing uh, Pastor David Menendez, who is tending to his uh, ailing father. So we want to keep him in prayer. But our regular co-hosts, we have uh, Aldo Leon from the Reconciled Church in uh, Homestead. And we have Jose Prado from Christ Family Church here in Miami. Um, and I am uh, Ken Jones, pastor of Glendale Baptist Church, also in Miami. We are generally f- or usually four local pastors who are committed to reform theology, and we love to get together to talk about these things. However, it's three of us in studio, but we do have a very special guest on the phone. Our guest this morning is a longtime friend, former, and this is hard to say, the former now retired president of Westminster Seminary, California. He is the author of Learning to Love the Psalms and a few other books. He is presently the chairman of the board for Legionnaire Ministries, and that is our dear friend and brother, Dr. Robert Godfrey. Thank you for joining us, Bob. Ken, great to be with you. Now, uh, you, I, I would say you are the father of, of three children, two boys, and one daughter, and one of your sons is a pastor, correct? Both sons are pastors. Oh, both. Oh, I didn't realize yes. the other one was as well. Yes, yep. Uh, one's pastoring up in Pennsylvania and one in the greater Los Angeles area. So, oh. um, they're great, great oh. guys. What, what church in L.A.? Um, there, uh, in L.A., it's a Grace United Reformed Church in France. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's in the south. <coughs> excuse me, in the South Bay. Which and it, what what, uh, what Reformed denomination are they a part of? Just curious. Well, it's uh, it's called the United Reformed Churches. It's a uh, a small Dutch Reformed church in its background. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah, it's it's the URC. Now, right. also, your lovely wife, Mary Ellen, is she still president of, of the college or involved with the no, Providence College? she had college? worked at, uh, as dean for a time at Providence Christian College uh, in Pasadena. Okay. Uh, a relatively new college, Christian college there. Mm-hmm. And she's still serving on the board there. Okay. Well, it's, it's hard to imagine. I mean, I, it seems like only yesterday when you were installed as president of, of the seminary down there, and now you are retired. So that means, I know, it's, that it's means one of us you, is old. I know. It's because you've moved so far away, so you don't have to see daily my deterioration. <laughs> <laughs> no, but uh, you're, now you're in your new capacity as um, president or chairman of the board for Legionnaire Ministries, you've been involved in a number of projects. So I want to first talk about the series of, of DVDs that you've done on church history. Could you kind of give us an overview of that project? Right. Um, I was asked by Legionnaire Ministries to do a, uh, a series of, of lectures on church history, and uh, as is too often with projects in my life, I didn't know exactly what I was getting into. We weren't sure exactly how long this might end up being. It ended up being 73 lectures, which uh, wow. when I was told that at the end, then I really felt old and tired. But, um, <laughs> it's, uh, what's, what's always interesting to me is how people 
say, wow, 73 lectures, you really went into detail. And, of course, what I mainly felt during the recording was how much I was leaving out and, and you know, how, uh, how broad the summaries had to be of everything. But uh, tried to give uh, a sense of how we got to where we are today, uh, primarily in the American church. Uh, we didn't focus just on the American church, but primarily there as uh, a help to people to see what forces in the history of the church had shaped um, the development of the church into the kind of uh, institution and life and piety and theology that the church has today. Well, so, well let's um, pause there for a moment. Uh, I think that's that's worth exploring when you talk about the present, the, the condition of the contemporary church. I think the influences that have led to where we are are more than one. So, what would you, what what periods of church history would be most helpful in understanding where we are presently in terms of our grasp of doctrine and and the faith in general? Well, what I, what I did in this series is I started with about 12 lectures on the ancient Church, which uh, really laid the foundation of how Christians understood uh, and, and responded to the, the saving work of Jesus and the, uh, the foundation of the Church laid by his apostles. And then uh, I spent time looking at the medieval Church, trying to see some of the ways in which the Church uh, continued to be faithful, but many ways in which the Church uh, began to um, be corrupted. And I think uh, some of the corruptions we see in the Church today uh, have interesting parallels to um, the medieval Church, where you have great wealth and great power, you almost always have great corruption. Mm -hmm. Um, Then we looked at the Reformation, um, the effort pioneered by Martin Luther to return to the Bible to purify the life of the Church, both doctrinally and morally. And then we looked at the modern world and uh, how new pressures of secularism and individualism uh, began to impact the Church, and how the Church responded, uh, particularly in America, with a form of religion that became quite uh, individualistic and... uh, focus very much on um, kind of emotional reactions to uh, the gospel, which led in, in many circles to a downplaying of the importance of theology. And so I think the Church today is the inheritor of that individualism, that nervous response to secularism, that, um, mm. uh, that focus sometimes more on how people are feeling than on uh, the truth as it is in Christ. So. I try to explore those things. Um, it sounds a little superficial as I just summarize it now, but uh, no, no, it really help us see the, the forces that shaped, uh, um, particularly conservative Protestant churches in America. Would Would you say that uh, the contemporary church, in at, at various points, is is the spiritualized offspring of the Enlightenment? <coughs> Well, um, that's an interesting way of putting it. Um, The Enlightenment certainly challenged the, uh, uh, particularly the intellectual claims of the Church, and that's part of what we've been scrambling to um, to respond to. And uh, of course, some of the some of the Church, the the liberal 
wing of the church in America sort of made peace with the Enlightenment and given in to the Enlightenment in a way that um, really uh, you begin to wonder what is distinctive about Christianity beyond being nice. Um, <laughs> and uh, I'm, I'm in favor of being nice, actually. I think it's probably an under underrated virtue, but <laughs> nevertheless, it's, it's not all that Christianity is about. Sure. And uh, uh, so, yeah, I think the church is is compromised in a variety of ways, and and I think uh, you know part of my conviction to justify my life as a historian is to say that if we don't know our history, we don't we often don't have enough self awareness to really see what's driving us and what's good and what's not so good about what's driving us. Mm. But, so that's part of what I hope. The series will do for people is to help us see where we've come from and how we got here and what are the forces that influenced us, and at least to reflect some on, on what's good and what's not so good about that. Okay. Yeah. Now, what what are some of the positive things that you have seen? Because obviously, um, I agree that the the Protestant Church as a whole in America has been compromised at a number of levels. And in fact, if we go back to the awakenings, uh, I know it's it's typical to say that the first great awakening was good because it was more Calvinistic in terms of the preaching, whereas the second great awakening is bad because you, you uh, that was led by Charles Finney. But I have argued that there were problems in that very first movement that manifests itself in the inner revival period and then comes to full fruition in the Second Great Awakening. And therefore, contemporary American evangelicalism, regardless of their historical confessions, are more, are more akin to the revivalism of the 19th century, regardless of denomination, than they are to um, the, the Protestantism prior to um, the founding of this nation. What would you say to that? Yeah, I, I, I think that's fundamentally right. And, and the way that plays out is um, American Protestantism tends to look to, to strong individual figures rather than to be committed to uh, the importance of the local church as an institution. And again, we're, we're painting with a very broad brush here, but, um, you know, that's that's become really proverbial in talking about American uh Religion, personalities are strong and institutions are weak. Um, and you know, there are some good things about that. It's uh, it's tended to produce, I think, uh, uh, stronger preaching in terms of communication skills. It's mm. uh, it's made people, at least at times in our history, more individually thoughtful and uh, to take more individual responsibility. Um, but the danger is that you get a lot of people who just sort of end up wandering from church to church looking for the place they'll feel the most. And um, um, that causes real problems then with Christian notions of community and fellowship and uh, love for one another. It's very hard to love people yeah. who don't know. Well, actually, it may be easier. That's an interesting topic we could discuss. Is it easier to love people you know or don't know? Um, but, um, um, you know, I, I think really building community that's supportive 
mm-hmm. uh, is a is a task uh, for churches today that uh, is challenged to some extent by our own history. Yeah, I feel like there's there's always like these bread bread crumbs that lead to one thing or the other and the other. And I think what I noticed uh, in the Great Awakening, it seemed like there was still a doctrinal framework, but the experience of the subjective experience of redemption becomes not ne- not necessarily like it hijacks, but it becomes emphasized so emphatically that eventually, like it necessarily will lead to we'll, 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 the local church and the means of grace and the objective, you know, place of of receiving Christ. It becomes less significant because the individual's experience of grace becomes like so prominent, and then that just kind of I feel like it just kind of steamrolls and cascades to kind of like a lot, a lot of the stuff we see now. But it's just it starts with emphasizing biblical things, I think, in a disproportionate way that would kind of minimize objective things. That's how it starts. Right. I think that's right. I, uh, I, I've said that part of what was behind the awakenings in America was a great fear of formalism. Um, after the Reformation, uh, after the struggles of the 17th century as well, um, Protestants could look around and say, you know, we've kind of got our doctrine right, we've kind of got our worship right, we've kind of got our church institutional life right, um, but it, it doesn't seem that everybody is as alive to Christ in these churches mm-hmm. as they ought to be. And so formalism, that we're just going through the forms, mm-hmm. became the worry. And uh, you, you, look at, you look at the rise of denominations in America, and a lot of them were really spurned, uh, spawned by a concern about um, formalism. And how do, how do we ensure that people really believe what they say they believe? Mm-hmm. And that's an important question. We should, we should minimize the, uh, the value of that question. Now, you know, we live in a different world than they lived in. in. In the world they lived in, pretty much everybody had to be a member of the church. There were civil laws that required church membership before um, the revolution in America. And um, so formalism was a bigger problem. Today in America, if people come to church, it's likely they're coming often out of some genuine conviction. So formalism may not be quite the problem uh, today that it was, uh, it was back then. But I think you're absolutely right. It was a biblical concern that got disproportionately emphasized and led ultimately to the um, to the neglect of other equally important biblical concerns. Yeah. I, I, isn't it true that so much of our her- heresy comes from a, a legitimate biblical concern, <laughs> just being, absolutely. Yeah. being uh, and, overcompensated? And even, yeah, and even when it's not heresy, it's, it's just disproportionate, unbalance in the life of the Church um, is often, yeah, uh, motivated by a genuine biblical concern that's carried too far. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, something else I've come to think about, too, is that a lot of the the big figureheads that kind of led the the thinking of the Great Awakening, they weren't, how, how do I say this? Like, Edwards is a good example. He wasn't very confessional in a lot of ways, in some important matters, namely like what the, you know, the how we define faith as being instrumental, um, how he would how he would see um, justification and things like that. It was a little. I, I feel like he was somewhat of like a 
a ver very innovative and unhelpful ways, and he kind of departed from a lot of uh, 16th century <laughs> convictions. And so he becomes like the celebrity, and I think a lot of his a lot of his kind of gaps become like these massive craters in the next generation. You know, um, to me, oh, he, yeah, he, I, he was a lot more pietistic than I think mm -hmm. the Calvinistic kind of people that preceded him. Yeah, you know, I think um, um, he, he was a genuinely brilliant oh, yeah. person who, who saw some of the problems of his own day and tried to think of innovative ways of solving them. And, um, you know, I think some of what he did, did in, in that direction was uh, helpful, but, but a, a number of things, yeah, were, I think, out of touch with a clear understanding of why the Reformation um, formulated things the way it did. And I, I guess one of my convictions as I got older is, before you change anything, ask why they mm -hmm. used to do it the way they did it. Mm -hmm. um, there may not be anybody alive today who uh, remembers why, but, you know, everything the Church has done, there is a reason for it at some time. And before you go changing it, you, you ought to figure out what their reasoning was and then stand back a minute and say, is that reasoning valid or not? Um, that's why it's so good to have Ken at his advanced age around, because, you know, he's seen almost <laughs> everything, so we can always ask him why yeah. they did things. You, you know I'm still here, right? Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, you're having a birthday coming up. I think all the listeners ought to send you large gifts. <laughs> well, yeah. this, this, this might help. Now, with... <laughs> With, uh, let's say, the, the, the church uh, in America, early church in America, the Protestants that came over, would you say that part of the problem, because you alluded to the fact that citizenship, you know, if you were a citizen of, of one of the colonies, if you, you know, membership was required, church membership was required, isn't that one of the prevailing, to whatever degree, problems and misconceptions that people have about church in our in our country that this was founded really as a really as a church state even if it yeah. if it wasn't expressed in our documents it was certainly in the minds of the people so this idea of the city on the hill so there was this inherent almost utopian understanding of of church because the early settlers, many of them were Puritans, some who had been dispersed yeah. throughout the continent, and they were coming, even though they had different um, forms of church, they still assumed a, a, a unity of church and state almost in a theocratic sense. Yep. I was thinking about that. I think it's weird because I, I feel like the— the reform, even though like there was a lot of kind of overlap with church and state, I feel like they had they had a clear understanding of two kingdoms, even though it didn't look like it so much. Like I, I, I mean, from, from from my perspective, I think the Westminster standards clearly articulate a distinction between heavenly and and earthly and our citizenship above and below. But I don't know. To me, I I think that those categories that were understood that maybe were inconsistent. I feel like with the Puritans, it becomes, I don't know, it almost seems like I, I hear people writing in America like like we are 
we are the new theocratic Israel well, conquering the, the new promised land, in, namely in America. It seems like those categories become more... Well, that, that would be my question. I think that was the assumption, and then it was reinforced by worse theology as it came along, especially by the time you get to the 19th century and the, the rise of dispensationalism with, with uh, Schofield and so forth. How would you see that, Bob? Well, it's, it, is, it is complicated. Um, all Europeans, when the, the first uh, colonists started to come to America, all Europeans believed, almost all Europeans believed, that there ought to be one true church that was supported by the state. And uh, Catholics believed that, Protestants believed that. Uh, and, of course, everybody believed that their church was the one true church. And uh, so, you know, that was not a terribly controversial notion. Um, and most of the Puritans who came to New England, for example, uh, still formally said that they were members of the Church of England, but they created a church in America that tipped its hat to the Church of England, but lived in a very different way to be more pure, um, and that they expected everybody to embrace that form of the Church of England in America. So um, that's why there was this formalism. Everybody was assumed to be part of the Church. Everybody was pressured mm -hmm. to be part of the Church. In New England, everybody was taxed to support the Church. So, um, But that wasn't a uniquely American uh, phenomenon. It, it was what most Europeans believed. What what gave it something of a new edge in America was that most of those Puritans who came over were post-millennialists. Yeah. So they really expected that their um, purified church in America would be kind of the, um, the beginning of this revelation mm -hmm. of Christ's reign on earth, and uh, that there would be sort of uh, a, a, an ever greater improvement of the Church and the world through that um, presence. And but also when you say that... It gave them a very optimistic spirit. It gave them a very sort of progressive, uh, uh, reforming spirit in a certain way. It, it had certain benefits to it. Hmm. Um, but as, as we were talking about the 19th century, um, it, uh, it, it also gets secularized into a spirit that says, uh, you know, I believe in the essential goodness of the American people. I'm always, I always smile when a politician in America says that. I think <laughs> I know what they mean. Um, but, you know, I, no certain would have just said, I believe in the essential goodness of the American mm. people. They all good Calvinists. They believed in the essential depravity of the American <laughs> people. And... They, they hoped that would be restrained by common grace and changed by saving grace. But um, they were realists. But it, it's interesting how their kind of post-millennial vision, I think, was, was co-opted in the 19th and 20th centuries into just kind of secular optimism sometimes. Mm, and yeah. um, um, that easily gets disappointed, I think. But, but even though, like you said, uh, Europe, I mean, what the, the, this expectation and this relationship, uh, state-sponsored churches, was a European thing that was followed over into uh, 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 into America by the the originals by by the settlers. But doesn't it? I think part of what makes this an experiment in the works 
is this whole new burgeoning political infrastructure. The old European political infrastructures were in place, and it was there were certain assumptions, but with this democratic republic experiment, it, it's going to look a, a little bit differently because yeah. you, you don't have the same sort of power structures that, that you had in Europe. Would, would you, wouldn't you say that would be the case? Absolutely. I mean, you don't, you don't have hardly any noblemen coming over to America, even though, you know, these are British colonies, there are noblemen in Britain. Uh, interesting, you know, a little told story from the um, 1760s is part of what laid the foundation for the American Revolution is that in the 1760s, there developed uh, stories in the colonies that uh, the King of England was, was thinking about sending a bishop to America. Mm. And um, this would suddenly confront all of these congregationalist churches that kept saying that the Church of England, but didn't believe in a bishop, didn't have a bishop. Um, suddenly, this, this whole hierarchical structure of bishops and implicitly noblemen begins to threaten the colonies in a way they've never had to think about it before. And um, that sort of feeds the revolutionary spirit in some ways, because they realize um, they were willing to keep up this fiction of um, being good Englishmen until things genuinely English (laughs) may be exported to them. And um, they don't want that. So, yeah, they've been... They've been living in a world um, that was a little artificial in terms of um, what they really thought about England and what was going on in England, and they had created a new world uh, where they weren't going to put up with a lot of those things. Hmm. Yeah. Wow, uh, we could go on, and that's that's uh, really appreciate that that input because it speaks definitely to certain presuppositions that people have about the church. Um, not only in a contemporary sense, but probably that have lingered for a couple centuries now. But that's about all the time we have this week. We will pick up our conversation next week uh, here at Saints and Sinners Unplugged. Thank you, Dr. Godfrey, for joining us, and we look forward to picking up the conversation next week.